We find ourselves in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, We're studying the book together. We're not going to take a break. We're going to go right through the Advent season, celebrating this great book and all it has for us. 2 Samuel chapter 11, Bible's in the back if you don't have one. Um, grab it, go right up and grab one, that'd be fine. All the verses will not be up on the screen, too many to cover. Um, if you don't have one, of course, take it home with you. Uh, chapter 11 is a familiar story, a narrative of Scripture, unfortunately, uh, revealing the deceitfulness, really, and the despicable sin of God's anointed. People love to poke fun at David, especially those who, who, have, uh, who mock our faith. Look at, our, at this man, this great man of God, and his sin. But the reality is, if we're honest... Those who mock him really don't see the, the truth of the depths of our own sinful hearts and the deep need that every single person needs for forgiveness of our sins. It's the old saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. We should be careful as we look to this passage. We're spending the next four weeks, actually, looking at David and Bathsheba, the story of David and Bathsheba, chapter 11. Uh, chapter 12, we'll take in two parts. In between, we'll look at Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance. Welcome to Advent season at King's Chapel. Uh, the best gift we can give you for the Advent season is the exposition of Scripture, God's Word, and that's where we will be. And we're entering into this new section of this book, and it shows us the trouble, the self-afflicted adversity Brought on by David, and I think, though, as we jump into chapter 11, I want to just spend a moment looking at its contrast. Chapter 11 has context. David was anointed king way back in 1 Samuel 16 by the prophet Samuel, a private anointing. David then was in the wilderness running from the murderous threats of that time, King Saul, the first king of Israel. David chose to obey God and not take out Saul, although... He could have, but he was the Lord's anointed. And David was responding to God in obedience to God. David was a man who trusted God. He was not like Saul, who did whatever he wanted to do. David was a man who inquired of the Lord many times on what the will of God was and then promptly followed it. David was a man who trusted. In fact, the Bible tells us that David was what? A man after God's own heart. You see, the, the grace of God and the mercy of God was shaping David to be the man that God called him to be. And after a major civil war, well, after Saul's death and then a major civil war, David, the king, consolidated, unified the nation. He, he captured the city of Jerusalem. He, he, he carried in the Ark of the Covenant, this visible manifestation of the power and the presence of God. God, God then made a, a covenant, or cut a covenant, actually, promised to David to make him a great name, to give him a piece of land that the people of God can dwell in safety. And then he promised that he would raise up an offspring from the seed of David, that one would come and he would build God a beautiful temple. Remember David said in chapter 7, we're dwelling, I'm dwelling in a cedar house, but the ark is in a tent. And God told him, no, you're not going to build it. Your, your son will build it. But also, not only will your son build that, but will come from you, your offspring. He will sit on an eternal throne, an everlasting throne. And we know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard it in our Advent reading today. 
after this covenant was cut, chapters 8 and 10, really, uh, Chris wrapped it up last week, did a great job. Chapter 8 through 10, we see David ruling uh, under, under God in, in the presence of God, with the ark of God, David ruling. And we got a, a glimpse of what the kingdom of God will look like. And what the kingdom of God will look like when Jesus returns, when the king comes. It was a promise, as was mentioned today again, that this, this coming kingdom will come and God will come and he will renew and restore all things. It was a foreshadow we've been saying. That David was reigning. David had conquered his enemies. David had subdued his enemies. David had expanded the borders. David had, grew, had grown in wealth and military force. And, great, and David was reigning, we said, the scripture tells us, in justice and righteousness. See, David, the king of Israel now, is sitting on his throne. And people would come to him for for uh, wisdom and for decisions. And he would sit on a throne. He was reigning in justice and equity or righteousness and justice. It was an expansion of this just and righteous kingdom. God had come. God had raised up David. God's chosen anointed one is ruling as God would rule. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. From the very beginning, the kingdom was fractured in Genesis 3 and someday the kingdom will reign in righteousness and justice. He would restore King Jesus, restore, renew the entire cosmos. There's a glimpse of this kingdom we've been saying week after week. David even kept his covenantal promise, if you remember, to Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, and said, you come and eat at my table always. Last week we saw this chesed, we said. It's this term used over and over, steadfast love. The steadfast love that God showed to David is chesed, steadfast love that David showed to Mephibosheth. And now in chapter 10, David shows it to a foreign country. They, they abuse him. They, 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 they disrespect David and his men. At the end of the story, David goes and conquers Syria along with the Ammonites. They lose thousands of people. And that's how chapter 10 ends. And, and the kingdom now is, is probably twice the size as it was under King Saul. David is now reigning over this enlarged kingdom. Things are good. Things are really good for David and Israel as chapter 10 closes. It is those times that David should have heeded the words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Things are going really well. Things are going really well. Hear the word of the Lord, chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. One said, is not this Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. 
Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah, but, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do these things. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank. So he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. And so Joab was besieging the city. He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came and fought with Joab, and and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jehoshaphat? Jerubasheth, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you should say to king, to the king, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent him to tell him. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the, to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought it to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's infallible, inerrant word. May God have a blessing reading to it. Three things. The context of David's sin. Very important we see that. After we see the context, we'll look at his cover-up. I mean, mean, the the context, we'll see this overwhelming desire that's overtaken him. The giant that defeated David. Then the the cover-up. He's he's going to do everything he can to cover up his sin. And then the conclusion. Death for Uriah. Number one. It's springtime. Kings normally go off to war, but David is home. 
Maybe he stayed home. He's enjoying the prosperity. He's enjoying this, this, this borders, the, the borders that have been expanded, uh, enjoying the just time of rest. All the kings are out to war. David is home. Maybe he trusted that Joab, he's got this handled. The Ammonite fight that we saw in chapter 10 has started up again. And, and maybe just thought, you know what, Joab can handle this. I'm just going to stay home. But what, whatever the reason is, the, the, the narrator is writing this in contrast that men are out to war, all of Israel out to war, the kings go to war, and David is home. He is not where he's supposed to be. I'm inclined to think that it's more about laziness and complacency and enjoyment of prosperity than anything else. It's late afternoon. In fact, the sun is going down, and he says that he's getting off his couch. The Hebrew word is bed. I don't know. Late night getting out of bed. It doesn't sound good to me. Sometimes, many times, we're prone to think that temptation to sin is greater when we are stressed, when we are facing trouble and hardships. But many times, it is during prosperity that we are tempted to sin. We, we don't know, we don't see, not that we don't know, but we, we, we can't see clearly what's right and wrong. We're too busy enjoying our self-indulgence. Prosperity and temptation go hand in hand. In fact, Proverbs 30 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I'm full, have all that I need, and I deny you, and I say, Who is the Lord? David sends his army, his army commanded Joab and all of Israel. Notice that in verse 1. All of Israel. I'm sure there were some men left behind, but the point the narrator is making is many, many, many able-bodied men are not in the city. They're at war, but not David. He's walking on his rooftop. He had a command of the city, I'm sure, from his rooftop, and the giant has set the trap. He's home. Enjoying life. And now David sees a very beautiful woman. Her name is Bathsheba. The fact, very beautiful is, is, a, is a, a word that is used of her physical appearance. She was great to look at. Here she is bathing. And some commentators, some, not all, and certainly not me, some commentators now want to point some of the blame at Bathsheba. If you read enough commentaries, you'll see some of that. They say that her bathing on her rooftop is somehow now bringing her into this culpability, this this culpability of David's sin. I think that's ludicrous. I think that's crazy for several reasons. Number one, in ancient Israel, houses had an enclosed courtyard, courtyard. Bathsheba was in her own home, in her own home, practicing a custom of cleansing herself from her cycle, a menstrual cycle, according to the Mosaic law. She was actually being obedient to the Torah. Number two, it's very possible that she thought the king was doing what other kings would do, wasn't home. All of men, almost all the men of the city are gone. Number three, there is not a single, a single piece of this text in any way implicates her in David's sin. None. Number five, Bathsheba finds out later on, we'll see that her husband, Reuara, has died And she doesn't say, man, my plan worked. Good, I'm David's now. No, she laments, the scripture says. Number six, as we'll see in the next weeks ahead, especially in a few weeks ahead, 
it is clear from Samuel, from the book of 2 Samuel, that the tragedies now that will follow David will take place in David's household are the consequences of his own sin. The entire narrative is centered on David's failures, not on her possible enticement. We see David falling in a, in a huge way. It's been said, the first look is for God, the second look is for self, and the third look is for the devil. We all know what David should have done. As he's up on that rooftop, as he gazed at her, he should have averted his gaze and got onto something else, or remember the words of Job that have covenant my eyes not to look at a virgin. We also know what David should not have done. He should not have continued to look further with his lustful thoughts as he watches her from the rooftop. Generally speaking, men are visual. Generally speaking. Women are too, some, but generally speaking. Don't send me an email. I said generally, okay? (laughs) But blind people can sin in their imaginations, amen? We are drawn by our own evil desires and enticed and tempted, but there's a giant difference between temptation and sin, right? There's a giant difference between the two. I should hope so because the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we are, yet he is without sin. David should have said, Lord, I'm going someplace. My thoughts are not going to the place that pleases you. Help me, Lord. Give me the strength to run back into my house. But when the glance turns into a gaze and the gaze turns to sexual fantasies, you've crossed the line. Jesus even said, if you have lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery. Obviously, lustful thoughts and what happens here are are different, both sinful, not justifying either one of them. We may not be able to avoid the temptation, but we can avoid the sin. Yet, David's sexual sin does not start here. David has already, we have seen through this book, has a problem with the ladies, his desire for women. 2 Samuel 5, and David took more concubines and more wives from Jerusalem. Six, seven, eight wasn't enough, right? He took back his wife, Michael, if you remember, after she was given to another man. David was warned in Deuteronomy 17 that the king should not have many wives lest his heart turn away. Ah, the context. You have the setting. He's at home when he's not to be. He's seeing, he's looking with lust, and now what does he do? He sends. See the verbs there? David turns his attention away from what he sees and sends someone to acquire about the woman. He doesn't even know her name. Obviously not a good neighbor. They, you know, going to get the paper every day, and he doesn't even know her. I mean, she was, she was, minimally, we could say that she was bathing privately. He's got to be at least some distance away. I mean, not miles away. He don't even know her. He learns that she is who? The daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the, Uriah the Hittite is a foreigner that has come to Israel and has recognized and been um, connected to the people of God. The people of God. In fact, his name probably given to him at his, his time that he was a proselyte. Yahweh is my light. Bathsheba is not this object. That's the point. She's someone's wife. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's granddaughter. 
Think about that next time you click on something you're not supposed to be looking at. Somebody's wife, somebody's daughter. Do you know who Uriah is? Uriah the Hittite is the man who, when David was on the run, that a bunch of his friends came alongside him and voluntarily came around him, and they were called the mighty men of David back. You remember back a few chapters back. He was a man who risked his own life for David as David was running from Saul. This is not just any old person. This one Uriah, David owes his life to. And that's what brings his sin to a greater level. Bathsheba's a daughter of one of David's fighters. The granddaughter, uh, in chapter 16, we find the granddaughter of a trusted counselor. He, was a, he had an inner circle of men that served him. That's his wife. Temptation. Here, follow the old pattern. Remember Genesis 3, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and, and not only saw it, but saw that it was the light to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate and gave it to her husband who was with her. James tells us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. David maybe could not help seeing, but he could have stopped watching, lusting, and sending for Bathsheba. This is the same David who looked in the face of Goliath and looked past Goliath to his God. How dare he tempt the living God? Everything has changed. He once didn't see Goliath. He saw his God. Now he sees Bathsheba and doesn't see his God. He lost sight of his God as he is lusting over Bathsheba. The fleeting pleasures of sin and its ugly consequences and not its ugly consequences, what David's mind. Now before we are too harsh on him, the seed of this sin lies in every heart. In every heart. It revealed its ugly face because of the moment David found greater pleasure in that moment than he took pleasure in his God. More sex, more drugs, more power, does that, more money, does that satisfy? One of the lies promoted in this culture is that each one of us has these desires, the, these, these appetites, and they were created for us to just be satisfied in them however we see fit. More sex, more drugs means less worries, more happiness, meanwhile, The most sad and empty people are those who run to those things. Augustine said it quite eloquently. All people seek happiness, seek love. That's not the problem. The problem is we're seeking love in all the wrong places. And he he puts it that it is a problem, Augustine writes, of a disordered love. It's not that we love. It's not that we pursue love. It's not that we need love. That's not the problem. The the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, shows us that we need that. The problem is, or I should say, love is distorted when it seeks its final satisfaction, its final happiness in something that is temporal, finite objects, finite things. We're not created like that. 
Only God can provide ultimate satisfaction and happiness to fulfill the longings of our hearts. To love God and be loved by God is then the indispensable requirement for happiness, joy of the longings of our hearts. Because God is the one who's infinite. God alone can satisfy the special heart, special need in humanity because he is infinite. And to mix it up is, is, is disaster, it's chaos. It leads to idolatry or to an ordered love. Love God with all your heart. Seek his kingdom first and everything will be added. It's not that we don't love. It's that it's disordered. And we love things more than we love God. David's not finding his satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction, and pleasure in God at this point. So after the setting of the trap, the seeing of his lust, the sending of, uh, of his men, he seizes her. And he has sexual intercourse with her. He took her and lay with her. One of my pet peeves is, I, I got a few of them, most of the pastors know them, but one of them is here. It's not an affair. An affair is a black tie event. It's adultery. David took Bathsheba. And actually, the Hebrew word is he collected her. It's, a, it's an abuse of his royal power. It's reminiscent of, of 1 Samuel 8 when, when Samuel told Israel, if you get a bad king, he's going to take, 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 take. How suddenly and fatally any one of us can fall. We sing a song here at King's Chapel called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Prone to Wander. It was written by Robert Robinson. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And if you say, no, 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 never me. (laughs) Taking that step toward that. Hmm. You're taking that step toward that. Rather than, we should, as Robinson says later in his song, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Let's be honest. Sins, possibility, desirability, and ability only needs opportunity for its maturity. Sin's possibilities, desirability, and ability only needs opportunity for its maturity. The only thing that's keeping us, don't kid yourself, from devastating sin is the intervention of God, a shielding of the opportunity. This is King David, countable to no one. What would that be like? No, not me. Really? Just the opportunity never presented itself. Bathsheba sends a message now. After David sending, 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 he sends letters, he sends all kinds of things. Now Bathsheba got something to say. I'm pregnant. The cleaning, uh, cleansing ritual is over. Uh, you know, she had, she had went her week menstrual. It was a week after that. It's a cleansing, perfect time for what? Pregnancy, and she's pregnant. And some people say, yeah, there, there goes Bathsheba. She lured him in. This is what some commentators, not all, but some. She lured him in, and then she sends a message. What did she mean by that? She, she, you know, she's just setting him up like, really? When her husband comes home after five months of war and she's pregnant, what is she supposed to tell him? I think she's looking for cover. I'm pregnant. David knew better. David is the hymn writer of Israel. 
He's a sweet singer. The mighty man, the man of God, the mighty warrior. But at this moment, we see that his feet are made of clay like the rest of us. He dishonors her, his husband, her husband, excuse me, his wives, and most importantly, dishonors his God. He's forgotten his relationship. This giant of lust is blinded up to the point that David is acting like an atheist. God doesn't exist. The context of this sad story. Look at the cover-up. You know, Jeremiah has said, the prophet said this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verses 6 through 14 contain the multifaceted, I mean, he must have really thought this through, way in which David, and I think it reveals to us, uh, our sinful hearts, how we can deceive ourselves. How we could deceive not only ourselves, but we could deceive one another. I mean, how far will we go to hide our sin? Hurt others in the process. After David finds out that his adultery has caused Bathsheba to be pregnant, he sends a message to Joab. He says, listen, send to me from the war, Joab, send him to me. Again, he's sending, he's in control, he's using his authority to cover up his tracks. He begins his deceit by asking this loyal soldier, as, as Uriah comes to see the king, that he just had and committed adultery with, who is now pregnant, he says to him, to Uriah, verse 7, How's Joab doing? Not how are you doing. How's Joab doing? Literally, the word is, is, is the Hebrew word for shalom. So he's saying, how intact, how whole is Joab? And actually, he says, how, how, how shalom is Joab? How is shalom of the people? How is the war going? Not how are you doing, Uriah? He's not interested in that. And David goes to him. This is great, verse 8. Listen, go home, wash your feet. Go down to your house and wash your feet. David doesn't look down at his sandals and go, you know, they're kind of dirty. Maybe you should go wash them. That's not what that's about. Men would go home from their house, from that military battle, from wherever they're walking. Their wives would greet them. They would wash, their feet would be washed in preparation for food and to sleep. That's what he's getting ready. In fact, David says, look at the verse 8. He sends them a gift. I have a present for you. Probably food, maybe some wine. We know what's going on, right? Not, listen, I have something I have to tell you. I I have a confession to make. I'm going to humble myself. No, here's a gift. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Proverbs 28. Do you remember... 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 21. David is in Nob. David goes to Nob and he sees the priest Ahimelech. Ahimelech. And, and, and he wants something to eat. And Ahimelech says, I got no bread for you, but I do have the bread from the temple, from the, from the sanctuary, from the, 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 the place of worship. And what does David say? You can give me that because our men have not slept with women. We have not been with our wives. We are holy and separate. Our young men are holy. Even when it is an ordinary journey, he says, David said. In other words, there was, a, there was this thing in Israel where people would be separated and, and be totally devoted toward David and the army. And that's exactly what Uriah says. Uriah, you refuse to go home and have relationship with his 
covenant lawful wife because everybody else is fighting. In fact, in verse 9, he says he literally lay at the door. It's the same word that David lay with his, his wife, Bathsheba. <laughs> what irony. David's plan was to, to take Uriah, say, look, things are great. I'm glad things are well. You go down, enjoy your wife, and then when she has a baby, nine months from now, eight months from now, it'll be yours, right? That's the cover-up. And then David says when he finds out he wasn't... <laughs> It's like it gets worse and worse. When he finds out he didn't go home, he's like, well, why didn't you go home? He's like, well, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, the, that very symbol of Israel, the Ark, and, and, and Israel and Judah dwells in booths. David has said that earlier. He's recognizing the covenant promise. There's this covenant symbol. And my Lord, Joab, and the servants of my Lord are in the field. I'm not going to go down to my wife. And then look what he says. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I'm going to honor the Lord. I'm even going to honor you, David. I'm going to honor Joab. I'm going to be uh, one with my fellow soldiers. I'm not going down. He's putting David to shame. David assumes Uriah is as spiritually apathetic as he is and that he will indulge himself rather than act like a soldier at war. But he refuses. I mean, they were missing their wives and family as well. They were separated as well. He's not going home. In verse 12, in growing desperation, verse 12, David ordered Uriah to spend another day in Jerusalem. I'm going to try something different. I got an idea. Break out the booth. Let's do some shots. <laughs> He's hoping that this servant now will sacrifice his principles for pleasure, just as David had done. Despite the alcohol, he still refuses to go and sleep with his wife. Woodhouse, a commentator, writes this very short, brief. He says this, Uriah drunk was better than David sober. I thought that was cute. Instead of going home, he spent the night at his master's, uh, among his master's servants. When, 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 when people, and I'm in this room, find themselves under the grip and control of their sins, they will find any method they can, I can, to cover up hidden sin. Sin will always lead you down the path of deception. David is learning that this sin will, 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 will find him out. It will find him out as his plan continues to fall apart. Now, we don't know what would have happened if David had said, I got something I got to tell you. I mean, he's the king. I mean, Uriah would be, I'm sure, not happy. But he's the king. Should have come clean. We don't know. When we hide our sin, we're concerned with the consequences. And we'll see David later on. We're going to go to Psalm 51, not today. When we are confessing our sins and repenting of our sins the consequences don't matter what matters is that i'm right with god and and whatever the consequences may be they are and we're less concerned about consequences we're less concerned about control we're concerned about our right relationship with our god 
It's about trusting and leaving the consequences of our confessed sin, our repentance of sin to God. But his deceitful heart won't allow it for now. And he's trying to do everything he can to hide and cover his sin. Plan A. As we see the conclusion. Let, let me bring him back. It's been a long journey. Let him sleep with his wife. They'll think it's his kid. Plan A. Plan B. Let's get Uriah drunk. It'll lower his inhibitions. He'll want to have sexual intimacy with his hot wife. Unfortunately, he passes out on the front lawn. So now plan C. <laughs> plan C. I got a letter. Uriah, give this letter to your commander. You can go now. Give this letter to your commander. And he tells Joab to go, excuse me, tells Uriah to give it to him. And in the letter, it says to Joab, fight the battle. When you see things going really bad, run the other way. And leave Uriah all by himself. I mean, what bold audacity that he gives Uriah his own death warrant and sends it to the commander, Joab. Not only that, but now the full plan of his murderous scheme involves and implicates Joab. I think he knew what was going on by then anyway, but now we know he knows. And if that's not bad enough, in order to make sure Uriah is killed, Joab sets Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting. And not only does Uriah get killed, but so does many other men who thought they were fighting for the honor of the king, for the nation of Israel. Meanwhile, they're fighting for the deception and lying, conniving, deceitful, adulterous David. How far can you go? The same man who repeatedly, and that's what I'm trying to tell you, the same man who repeatedly resisted great temptations with words like this, 1 Samuel 24, the Lord forbid I should do anything like that. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. David, the one who was is, who is so angry and expressed outrage at wrongdoings, around him, whether it was trying to take out the king when he didn't, King Saul, and he said, no, we're not doing that. Even Joab, when Joab killed Abner at the gate, remember? How dare you, Joab? Really? Now, Joab, you're going to be part of my killing of an innocent man. I know this is hard. I had to do it all week. But some of you here this morning may be on the brink of making an enormous, foolish decision. Running headlong into a situation you know is disastrous. Could be adultery. It could be pornography. It could be cheating, school dishonest business practices. Maybe you're having sexual relationship outside the covenant of marriage. It's the other F word called fornication. One man, one woman, covenant of marriage. You may have some empty seats next week. I'm just telling you what God says in his words. And whatever you need, I want to tell you this morning 
that you need to know that sin's promise of joy are lies. And that the end of the road is disaster, as Owens, John Owens, he's a Puritan, was once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If you are in sin, if you're walking into what you know, don't be like David and double down on it. Coming up with plan A, plan B, plan C, seek the Lord. Seek help. See God as the greatest pleasure and satisfaction of your soul. Turn from your sin. Turn and walk away. Seek help. David is not trusting God and doing what is right. He has violated, I counted seven of the Ten Commandments. Seven. Uriah is dead. That's the finality. Uriah is now dead. He has broken, as I said, seven. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. That would include your worship of lust. Number two, honor your father and your mother. Well, that went out the window for David. Three, you shall not murder. Uriah's dead. You shall not commit adultery. So that's Uriah's covenant wife. You shall not steal. That would include your military's friend, your friend who, who stood by you's wife. You shall not bear false witness to your neighbor. Hey, uh, Uriah, come here. I want to see how things are going. Liar. You shall not covet. A relentless craving of what others have that you want. In verses 28 through, excuse me, 18 through 24, we have Joab's response. He responds after Uriah is dead. Joab not only tells his messenger, listen, you've got to go back to the king. This is what you ought to say. And if the king gets mad or gets angry, this is what you tell him. Joab is covering himself. You see, the original plan was Uriah was going to be brought into battle by himself as if he was going to fight the whole army himself. Joab knows he can't do that, so he sends Uriah and these other men in as well. David may not like that idea, but it was the only thing that he could do to make sure that David's plan worked. A lot of people died. More casualties than planned. And in verse 25, David said to the messenger, after he's told what happened, listen to this. Thus shall you say to Joab, lots of people died, Uriah is dead. Thus you shall say to Joab, verse 25. We'll go back one slide. There we go, let me see. Can you put up verse 25 right there? The one slide before that. David said to the master, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city, overthrow it, and encourage him. This is like saying, ah, soldiers come, soldiers go. Such is war. Some die, some don't die. Uriah, the faithful warrior, and other warriors who fought in your battle are dead. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. David does not shed a single tear. His flippant response to the news of Uriah's death is appalling. Each new step of deceit seems easier than before. Carrying out this murder and now with no remorse. That's for all of us. As we walk in sin, as we continue doing what we know we should not do, does it not become easier? Don't shake your head or raise your hands. But it's okay. It does. 
It does. And then the final words in verse 26, very hard. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, doesn't say Bathsheba, it's her though, when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. I don't think this was just a cultural norm. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done, what? Displeased the Lord. Literally in the Hebrew it is, was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Same with verse 25. If you look at verse 25, he tells Joab, the messenger, tell Joab, don't let this matter displease you. Know what he's saying? He's saying the same thing. Don't let this matter of evil be evil to you. In David's eyes, the sin was, was concealed and should not, should not be evil to Joab. It's over. Don't let this, this thing, this evil, get you down. But in God's eyes, it was not canceled. And evil is not over. During this whole scenario, this whole chapter, all of 25 verses, no, excuse me, 26 verses, not one mention of the Lord. Not one mention of the Lord. He's silent, but it doesn't mean he's absent. He's silent, but it doesn't mean he's absent. Beginning with the death of Bathsheba's newborn, David's life will be plagued. David's life and his family will be uh, problematic. One commentator writes this, David has lived an almost enchanted life. He has always seemed to come out on top, but... Chapters 12 through 20 of 2 Samuel portray a different picture in which David is plagued with problems stemming mostly from his own family. The role of 1127, that the Lord is displeased, is to connect the dots, to draw a line from David's sin and its consequences to the problems in his family. The ultimate reason is David's own sin, which he futilely attempts to conceal and which leaves him with unresolved problems, end quote. His life will begin. You'll see a change now for the rest of the book. Uh, it's showing us that, that sin destroys. It's showing us that sin uh, has the capacity to unravel things in our life. Sexual pleasure are a gift to us from our Creator. Sexual pleasure is a gift from our creator, and it's for the purpose of binding men and women in lifelong covenant marriage. It's for pleasure, it's for procreation, and the boundaries, listen, especially young folks, the boundaries that God gives us in his word are not a killjoy, but they are there for our own good. The boundaries that God places on our sexual behavior are there to protect us and for the wonderful, purposeful meanings of sexual relationship. One man, one woman in a covenant of marriage. Let's, let's, let's take a couple things away. Number one. Number one, there's no guarantee. Men and women, ladies, brothers, sisters. There's no guarantee we fight temptation, and we should. But there's no guarantee we'll overcome it. We need to be real and honest about where we are. Right? We need to face our choices every time and say no to sin, yes to God. Realize that never put your guard down. Number two, 
Guard your heart and your eyes. If you're married, guard your relationship. Be very, very, very careful how you relate to the opposite sex. If you've been in any kind of premarital with me or marital counseling with me, I tell everybody, I'm, I, be careful. Guard your heart. Guard your, guard your eyes, especially as you behave. It doesn't start, sexual sin, adultery doesn't start in, in the body. It starts in the mind and in the emotions. Guard yourself. Number three, cultivate your walk with the Lord. Rely upon the gospel. Rehearse the gospel. And we are so desperately wicked that God had to die. We are so loved and valued. He was glad to remember out of gratitude and thanksgiving and love that he has first loved us. We are to walk what is pleasing to him, reading the scriptures in prayer. Number four, nurture intimacy with your spouse if you're married. Covetousness is less of a problem. It is a problem, but it's less of a problem if you are content, as Paul would say, and satisfied with the one God has given you. Number five, be accountable. Be accountable to each other if you're married. If you're not married, or even if you are married, it's good to be accountable to one another of the same sex. Be accountable to each other. The problem was that David, despite all that God had done for him, despite all that God had given him, was a flawed human being like you and like me. Right? And the shock of this fall is deepened by the greatness of what we have seen in him. If a good man like David can fall morally, then we must all acknowledge the danger that we are to ourselves. Like David, safety from outside threats does not secure for us because of the flaws that we have in our nature. We're all capable. We're all capable. We're all capable to be short-sighted. Those of us in position of authority, those of us in position of leadership even more so, to use your authority, use your power. And I'll even say this, those of us who serve others regularly, completely, and just are, are... just giving oneself to someone else and continually serving people have to be extra careful because in our warped sense of thinking, we deserve it. Sometimes the greater we serve, the more we're tempted. Now listen carefully as we wrap up. Today's the candle of hope. Hope is in the Lord. David's hope was not in himself. David's hope was in his God. In Psalm 39, 7, he wrote, My hope is in you, Lord. Why? Because David knew that God had promised, that God had given him military victory, that God had promised that his kingdom would be established forever. How can that be? He's such a flawed human being like you and like me and like Abraham. is because of the one whom God would send. The gospel message that the Son of God has come and his name is Jesus. And unlike you, and unlike Abraham, and unlike David, he, Hebrews 4 says, was without sin. First Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. First John 3, in every way he was pure. Hebrews 7, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. Unlike David and unlike us, he was entirely obedient to the Father. These events in this passage show us that really David's no better than Saul. 
The difference between Saul and David was that David had a place in God's heart that Saul did not. David was the recipient of God's grace in a way that Saul was not. David's greatness and goodness was a consequence of, not the reason for God's choice of him. You hear that? God's choice of David, his gracious purposes for him was the working of God's steadfast chesed, love and faithfulness. That was his hope. That, my friends, is our hope. David became greater and greater, it says, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Chapter 5, verse 10. The significance of David's sin, the significance of David's sin is like that of Adam, is huge and far-reaching, affecting so many. Just so the significance of Jesus' obedience is massive, far-reaching and effective, affecting many. Romans 5, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now listen to this. Over the past several weeks, and over the past several chapters, we talked about this. David was a foreshadow of the king of kings. David was, was reigning in justice and righteousness, was looking like the coming king when King Jesus comes in perfection. He pointed us to the gospel over and over again. Yet here, David's life is antithetical to the gospel. It is not just that he committed adultery and and murder and other things. In order to have Uriah killed, he had to have a number of other soldiers die. And Joab sends his group of men to this battle, not just Uriah, but he endangers many men and many fall and die. The king kept his sin alive By killing many. And the gospel is, in order to be freed from sin and shame, the king will have to die. The many die for the king to remain in his deceit. And yet Mark 45 says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the hope that we have is that the king gave his life so that you can be killing sin. So that you will not bear the death penalty for your sin. He rose from the grave in order to forgive you from your sins, of your sins, and to make you right with God. Because of David's sin, he deserved death, but he had hope in the one who would die in his place as his substitute. Forgiveness of sin past, present, and future is available through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for those who will turn. That's what communion is about. Communion is about coming before the Lord in confessing of our sins and turning from our sins and receiving his grace, remembering his death. That's what the bread is for, his death. The cup is the blood it was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That's our hope. That's our only hope. And I don't know where you are or what's going on in your life, but I, by the, by, by the word of God and through the work of his spirit, I invite you to come to the table confessing your sins, repenting of your sins, receiving forgiveness, and turning away from the direction you are headed in. That's what today's all about. If David can fall, you and I can fall. David will be restored and be forgiven. He'll bear the consequences. But David had hope because of the son that will be born. And his name is Jesus. Do you have that hope today? If you're a Christian, come. We're going to come down the aisles. If you guys can make some room, we have two 
Two, two aisles come down here, two, two rows come down, and we'll go back out that way. Let us pray together. Father, it is hard to see, to hear. This message, but Father, it is so awesome that you will not turn us away, that you will not, you will never abandon us. You call everyone everywhere, no matter the shame, no matter the sin, no matter what has, they have done or plan on doing, you call us all to come to find satisfaction and pleasure in you. In the truth of your perfect life, Lord Jesus, your brutal resurrection, the atoning sacrifice of your sin, and the glorious empty grave shows us and declares to us that sins can be forgiven, sacrifices accepted, justice has been served. And Father, we ask by your Spirit as the music is played and as we confess and repent of our sins in our seats, Lord God, you would get glory. Turn our hearts toward you. Help us to cling to Jesus, to love Jesus, to worship Jesus above all earthly, temporal things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.